Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bonilson. I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and also one of the leaders of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we focus on India's soft power and its evolving engagements with Africa. India has deployed its soft power in Africa ever since it became independent, first in the name of post-colonial solidarity and later under the banner of South-South Cooperation. Following economic liberalization from the 1990s and more recently the ascent to power of a Hindu nationalist government, India's geopolitics have changed and so has its engagement with Africa. So, how is Africa imagined today by key Indian actors and how do Indian actors deploy soft power in Africa at the current conjuncture? To discuss these and related questions, I'm joined today by Kenneth King, Professor Emeritus at the University of Edinburgh and also the former director of its Center for African Studies. I'm also joined by Mira Venkatachalam, a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for African Studies at the University of Mumbai. Welcome to the both of you. Much has been written in recent years about India's increasing global footprint, and also, I suppose, about India's presence in Africa. I think in the last two years alone, Indian authors have published no less than three books on India in Africa. And the two of you, Mira and Kenneth, also have a new book out on this topic. It's titled India's Development Diplomacy and Soft Power in Africa. It was published by Boydell and Brewer. Kenneth, what is unique about this book? Oh, thanks. I think one of the things that's unique and in comparison with the accounts that you just referred to, Kenneth, is that we try and take a more critical approach towards India's cooperation with Africa. What do I mean by that? We try and get behind the rhetoric in which people in India have talked about a shining example of India's South-South cooperation being the Pan-African E-Network. And we try and get behind some of these, what you might call the symbols of India's cooperation, like Gandhi's statue being gifted to Africa and even being taken down in one or two places. We get behind the talk about solidarity and ancient connections between India and Africa, and we try and therefore understand better the cultural relations, whether it's between Indians in the diaspora and Africa, or African students in India and how they are collaborating in in their studies. There are, as you said, some accounts of India-Africa in the last few years, and I have on my desk in front of me one of these called Two Billion Dreams Celebrating India-Africa Cooperation. These celebratory accounts are all done by Indians. They're not done by Africa. So we've looked quite carefully at some of the, what you might call the realities of India's cooperation with not only its neighborhood, but also Africa more generally. And there you can see that, for example, Afghanistan gets a huge amount of aid compared to the whole of Africa, or Bhutan gets similarly. Finally, we try to get behind Narendra Modi's celebration of Africa. He talks about India not just being a country, but a whole civilization. And he also talks about how it is the 
teacher of the world, we do some quite careful critical analysis of what's behind that discourse. And finally, we look at the geopolitics a little bit. We wonder, and this connects to China, how is it that India is now engaged with what is called the Quad, one of four countries with Australia and US and Japan? I spoke very briefly about these different and also shifting ways in which India has both imagined Africa, but also practiced its Africa outreach from independence onwards, these shift from an emphasis on early post-colonial solidarity and up until the current moment with Modi, whom you mentioned now, and a more sort of Hindu nationalist orientation, both at home and also abroad. If we look at the long durée, if one might call it that, of India's engagement in Africa, what are some of the main changes over time? I think Mir will probably reinforce what I'm going to say now, but I think one of the ones, and it's illustrated in education and many other areas, is the privatization or diversification of India's aid, the commercialization, you might almost call it. For example, many of India's major company brands the ones that that all of us know quite well, are to be found in Africa. And they've profited from what the Indian government calls their lines of credit, which is simply a form of tied aid. Now, these lines of credit, these LOCs, started in 1964, the very year of Nehru's death. And the same year, 1964, saw the beginning of India's technical and economic cooperation, what's called ITEC, Both of those, I think, are connected to the disastrous border war with China. Another change that's also linked to China is India's newfound fascination with target setting at the pan-African level. They followed, therefore, China, which has had a forum on China-Africa cooperation since 2000 and has had no less than eight of those high-level meetings India's had just three starting in 2008, and they've had what are called their India-Africa Forum Summit. So that's helped with target setting. By contrast, again, my point about privatization, you'll see that the Confederation of Indian Industry has had no less than 17 such conclaves, as they call them, on India-Africa. One last thing that one might want to look at in comparing the long durée, as you called it, is that India has not got round to having a formal white paper or policy paper on its cooperation with Africa, whereas China has had one since 2006. In fact, it's had two or three examples of that. I think those are some of the changes that I would pick out, Kenneth. If I could ask you about capacity building also, something that's been central to India's Africa policy from early on. Already in the 1950s, India had announced scholarships for students from Africa, and this being a time when most African nations were yet to become independent. Have there been any changes to this particular focus on capacity building, or do you still see this as a pillar of the Indian policy? That's a good question, Kenneth. What I would say is that If you look at the more recent illustrations of India's exemplification of capacity building, they still use the language that is quite strong and metaphorical. They talk about capacity being the fulcrum of India's cooperation. And they talk about 
iTech, which I mentioned earlier, being the flagship project. They talk about the shining example of Indian aid being the Pan-African network. And they've certainly followed that up with a different but similar kind of orientation to Africa, which we could call tele-education or telemedicine, offering no less than 15 scholarships online. But interestingly, compared to the older aid to education, only 22 countries have signed up for that, not the 54 that were involved in the Pan-African e-network. And interestingly also, because, as I said, India's only had three India-Africa Forum summits, there's been no opportunity to reset the number of scholarships for Africa. So, in fact, the 15,000 are finished. They were used up last year. So the tele-education and telemedicine are a bit high and dry, I would say. Face-to-face scholarships are still important. But look at the numbers. India is only giving 900 to the whole of Africa. These are proper scholarships for degree courses, but they give more than 900 to one country, Afghanistan. They give 1,000 to Afghanistan. You could say that one big change, it appears to be a change, is India offering no less than 100 India-Africa institutions through the India-Africa Forum Summit. But has it delivered on those? You could say, no, it hasn't. It sounds like an important dimension, but it hasn't resulted in institutional development. By contrast, when in earlier days they gave out to a country like Ghana, the Kofi Annan Center of Excellence in IT, that works very well. It's moving well. We could say that COVID has had a huge impact on capacity building, but only for a short time. We're back to a new program called Study in India. That has high aspirations, but do we know much about the numbers? A really good book written about India-Africa quite recently said that India should really aspire to have 200,000 foreign students coming, if it's to be true to its destiny as a teacher of the world. But in fact, there's only about forty to 50,000 foreign students, and therefore only about ten or 11,000 African students in India. So that's an example of where the study in India idea, which is a good one, has got a long way to go. One perhaps quick addition to the capacity building dialogue, India has started to think about branch plants overseas and has even talked about starting an institute for technology, IIT, in Dar es Salaam. That hasn't happened yet, but it's something that's interesting. They have, however, developed over the last few years since the India-Africa Forum Summits, a series of vocational training centers, and even going back to my point about privatization, even centers that emphasize entrepreneurship and development in Djibouti and in a short time in Rwanda. Perhaps that's a few of the examples of how capacity building is still very much a central fulcrum of India's cooperation with Africa. Albeit with some quite significant changes happening also within that domain. Mira, if I may pose you a question that's almost absurdly abstract or absurdly general. What is it that Indian policymakers actually think that Africa can learn from or get from India? but also vice versa. 
from the African side of the table, what do African policymakers think that they can get from India? So Indian policymakers often speak about their engagements with Africa within the framework of South-South cooperation. So South-South cooperation provides a kind of space for countries at a somewhat equal stage of development to exchange expertise and knowledge with each other. Africans see this India-Africa relationship as very much a balancing of equals, so they believe Indians to be at the same stage of economic development as most of their nations are. However, as we show in our book, many Indians now think that India is actually more technologically and economically advanced than Africa, and perhaps therefore capable of crafting solutions for development in Africa. Now, the rhetoric in Indian policy circles is largely geared to what Africans can take away from India's developmental experiences. So, for instance, there's a lot of talk of how a green revolution of the kind that we had here in the 1960s could be replicated in parts of Africa, and more recently about how some of the homegrown digital technologies, such as the Aadhaar system of identification and various digital apps used during the COVID pandemic, could be used as tools of governance in Africa. So the emphasis very much is on what Indian models can be replicated in Africa for Indian policymakers. Now, I think in terms of what African policymakers think about India, I think Africans are certainly intrigued by India's democratic ethos and the fact that India has an almost unblemished record of preserving democratic institutions throughout its post-colonial history. India is also considered to be a powerhouse of scientific and technological innovation, and it is seen to be particularly good at crafting low-cost developmental solutions. African policymakers have also been intrigued by India's evolving modalities of funding for development projects at home and abroad. So India has been largely successful in implementing public-private partnership models. And by in 2014, the African Development Bank actually requested the Indian government to share details of such model agreements and legal documents to facilitate something quite similar to finance development in Africa. So I would say on the whole, India's presence in Africa has increased the number of options of developmental partners for African policymakers to choose from. And this choice is generally interpreted as a good thing. I mentioned in the beginning of this episode that I come from anthropology and Often there's quite a gap between anthropology and international relations or studies of diplomacy. But one thing that I really appreciated having looked at your book as an anthropologist is the strong focus you have on cultural diplomacy, of the way in which cultural resources, but also historical symbolism and so on, can be used as part of kind of diplomatic toolbox. But now we have a context where India's domestic cultural politics is greatly influenced by a resurgent and very self-confident form of religious nationalism. Uh, Kenneth mentioned Modi earlier on, and we've mentioned a few times this ambition about India emerging as a, a teacher of the world. This sort of shift in domestic cultural politics towards Hindu nationalism how do you see this affecting the symbols and politics of India's cultural diplomacy? Okay, you're right in that India has invested very heavily in cultural diplomacy right from the 1950s. So the Indian Council for Cultural Relations, known as the ICCR, was founded in 1950, and its mandate was to promote Indian culture abroad. India has made numerous attempts to popularize Bollywood, yoga, Ayurveda, traditional dance forms, cuisine, and literature as symbols of Indian soft power, 
through a number of arenas. Now, we actually argue that there's a great deal of continuity in India's cultural diplomacy in Africa, right from Nehru to Modi. And we do not see anything radically different, even though we have a very different government, which privileges different symbols of Indianness internally, as governments would have done in the past. So if anything, these cultural elements that I've just mentioned, Hollywood, Ayurveda, etc., are now promoted with a little more enthusiasm abroad by this government. So, for instance, international students can now come to India to study subjects like Ayurveda, Buddhism and yoga through various government-sponsored scholarships. And there are more scholarships available to do this. And Narendra Modi himself was able to get the UN to recognize International Yoga Day in 2014, which is observed in India and overseas on the 21st of June. So this is a major triumph for Indian cultural diplomacy overseas. But as I mentioned, the symbols of India's cultural diplomacy remain unchanged right from the beginning to now. And we don't really see anything markedly different promoted overseas anyway. In extension of this I have to ask you about the controversy over Mahatma Gandhi. Kenneth briefly touched upon this earlier, the significance of Gandhi for very many different reasons. India's father of the nation and also a figure that has symbolized in in many ways India-Africa relations. But in the last few years, Gandhi has suddenly become quite a controversial and polarizing figure with allegations that he was racist and that his statue is being removed. Can you tell us more about these controversies over Gandhi, I suppose, especially in South Africa and Ghana? So Gandhi has widely been used as a kind of symbolic shorthand for Indian values, which are things like frugality, nonviolence, concepts such as satyagraha, which is nonviolent action, and swadeshi, which is the emphasis on local production, among a whole host of other value systems which Indians identify with. Now, India promoted Gandhi as an anti-colonial icon, which, of course, he was, as he dominated the Indian nationalist movement and freedom struggle. So the ICCR, which is the Indian Council for Cultural Relations, and the government of India have donated 70 or more Gandhi statues and busts to countries worldwide, including many in Africa. Now, one of the first controversies about Gandhi erupted in South Africa in Johannesburg in 2015, when a statue of Gandhi was vandalized. And Gandhi, of course, began his career in South Africa, where he was a young lawyer, and he confronted the colonial government over treatment of Indians settled there. The attack on the Gandhi statue, interestingly, in Johannesburg came soon after the Roads Must Fall movement, where students at the University of Cape Town asked for Cecile Rhodes' statue to be pulled down. Now, Cecile Rhodes was a staunch imperialist, and he believed that cultural and economic colonization was actually necessary for the progress of non-white people who were only fit to live under European colonial rule. So the attack on Gandhi soon after the attacks on the Rhodes statue were kind of difficult to understand because both of them stood on opposite sides of colonialism. But the attack on the Gandhi statue in South Africa was explained away as in terms of brewing anti-Indian sentiment, which has often occurred in the post-apartheid era, as South Africa's racial tensions come to be further exposed. But it's also important to note that many South African historians have been heavily critical of Gandhi during his time in Africa, and they have argued that his diaries reveal that he actually held very racist attitudes towards black Africans. But there's another link in the story which will explain why Gandhi became contentious in Ghana. There's a long tradition of solidarity between Indian Dalits, and these are people who were at the bottom of the Hindu caste system. There's a long tradition of solidarity between Indian Dalits and the African world. 
B.R. Ambedkar, the architect of the Indian constitution, was heavily critical of Gandhi throughout his career. Ambedkar studied in the United States. For him, the condition of African Americans and the racism they faced was very similar to the plight of Dalits in India. Ambedkar's line of reasoning meant that many future Indian scholars would draw parallels between race in America and Europe and caste in India. Dalit struggles decades after Ambedkar's death came to draw inspiration from the civil rights movement in the US. So, for instance, an organization called the Dalit Panthers is modeled along the lines of the Black Panthers. Now, Gandhi and Ambedkar had radically different views on how to empower Dalits. Many critics of Gandhi argued that he was not forceful enough in his condemnation of the caste system, and so he represents a tradition of thought that's radically different to Ambedkar's. But for scholars in the African world, the Dalits are essentially the blacks of India, as they are combating systemic injustices in the same way that black people are doing in the Euro-American world. So in Ghana, the Gandhi Must Fall movement argued that Gandhi's positionality within India, which is essentially a position situated against Ambedkar, meant that Gandhi was anti-Dalit and hence anti-African. Therefore, they called for his statue to be pulled down. One thing that you dwell on in the book is the so-called Indian exceptionalism, a term that's used to refer to this perceived Indian civilizational uniqueness. I mean, that India is uniquely placed to make a significant contribution to the global moral order. We see this, I suspect, also today in the way in which Indian policymakers now often speak about India as a Vishwaguru, as a teacher or knowledge giver of the world. How does this sense of Indian exceptionalism or uniqueness play out in India's Africa policy? So many countries make a claim to exceptionalism or uniqueness. For instance, the United States has often celebrated its exceptionalism based on the belief that its political and economic systems, its morals and cultures are actually very unique and worthy of replication elsewhere. Now, the idea that India is unique and is destined to play a significant role in world politics is not new at all. So ideas of Indian exceptionalism date back to the 1900s as anti-colonial nationalist movements against the British sprung up. So nationalists of many denominations, right from the Vekananda to Gandhi to Nehru, argued that India's strength was its age-old Hindu civilization, its ability to synthesize tradition and modernity, and to manage diversity and plurality. The belief that Indian civilization is exceptional continues even today, and it's found at all ends of the political spectrum, right from centrist political denominations to the right. Soon after 1991, India instituted a series of very aggressive neoliberal reforms. These were widely touted as successful by the political elite in spite of various criticisms of these economic policies. So we argue that the idea of Indian exceptionalism has actually changed in recent years as a result of the belief that India is an economic success story in the global south. So not only does Indian exceptionalism now refer to the country's age-old civilizational attributes, but it also refers to a model of economic growth which places emphasis on entrepreneurship and innovation within a technocratic state structure. When we say that Indian exceptionalism tends to inform India's Africa policy, what we mean is that Indian policymakers tend to think of their relations with Africa within this framework. And they believe that Indian policymakers believe that they have solutions to offer Africa which are better suited to it than, say, the Chinese or the Americans. So that's really what we mean by Indian exceptionalism.
Mira and Kenneth, thank you so much for taking the time to join our podcast and to tell us more about your recent book, India's Development Diplomacy and Soft Power in Africa. And also thank you for shedding light on India's evolving engagement with Africa. My name is Kenneth Bornilsen and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.